Well, there are a few cardinal sins in marriage, and they may differ from marriage to marriage. Examples of cardinal sins may include leaving the seat up. One in my house is not replacing an empty toilet roll. I don't know how you are about me, but for me, there's no excuse for that. I'm like, you can be running from a nuclear bomb going off. In my mind, there is still time to do the right thing and put a new roll before you leave the restroom. That's how serious I am about it. One of the other cardinal sins that you can never ever do in marriage is you can't be watching a movie with your spouse and then, and then like fall asleep and then wake up 80% of the way through it and start asking questions, right? That, we all agree, that, that's just a decent thing you can't do. You can't ask, who's that? Why are they in a fast car? Why is the city on fire? Where did the volcano come from? You can't do that. And uh, so I wanted to just use that as an analogy to let you know that we've been going through this fascinating book of Daniel. And this evening, we're actually going to be in our last message in this series. And so if you've missed a bunch of it, or you're just hopping in now, there's going to be some things that you're not going to quite understand, but that's okay. You're still going to get a whole lot out of it. I just wanted to encourage you, don't sweat it. You're sort of coming into episode 12 or 13 of a fascinating mini-series, but I'll do my best to keep it clear as we go through this. The book of Daniel is divided in half by theme, and by now, most of you know that the first half is the historical autobiography of this man, Daniel, and his time in Babylon. It covers one major event per chapter across several uh, chapters and events spanning multiple decades, like Daniel's famous trip to the lion's den. The second half of the book of Daniel is incredibly mystical. It records dreams and visions that God gave Daniel which prophesy future events that unfold exactly as God said they would. Some of them have already unfolded and some of them are yet to unfold. But when it's all said and done, they will all have happened exactly the way the Lord said they would. Chapter 10 of Daniel marked the beginning of an incredibly detailed prophecy regarding the destiny of the nation of Israel, Israel being both a political nation, but more importantly, a group of people, the Jews. And it covered their destiny all the way up to the second coming of Christ, which is a future event from today. That prophecy continued all the way through chapter 11, which we studied last week, and it continues into chapter 12, which we will study today. This prophecy has been shared with Daniel by an angel who's delivering it as a message from God. And in chapter 11, which we looked at last week, the prophecy detailed the way Israel would be trampled by various world powers throughout four centuries between the life of Daniel and the birth of Jesus. And this was all going to be part of God disciplining the nation of Israel. It was a specific kind of discipline that was and is designed to break Israel of her pride and turn her back to God, turn her toward her Messiah, Jesus. And as we studied through that incredibly detailed prophecy, we couldn't help but be struck last week by how the Lord was perfectly accurate in predicting future world events. Last week it was stunning the level of detail with which God predicted what would happen in the 400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus. And we looked at what secular history tells us and how it verifies everything the Lord said would happen. And I have to share something John MacArthur said that I came across in my studies this week. Uh, This just blessed my heart. This is what John MacArthur says. He said, now, I had people say, well, you just can't believe the Bible when it tries to be specific. 
This is my favorite John MacArthur sentence ever. That is such an asinine comment that it hardly deserves an answer. I mean, God is good at generalities, but he has trouble with specifics. You can believe the minutia as well as you can believe the general things. And so I just wanted to encourage you with that, that if you've been with us through the study, you've begun to realize when God speaks about the future, he's specific. He doesn't write down in the Bible, there'll be a man in a country to the north who will have a birthday next year. That's not what the Lord does. He's incredibly, incredibly specific. This week we're gonna finish the book of Daniel and we're gonna pick up right where we left off in verse 36 of chapter 11 as the angel continues to deliver his prophetic message to Daniel. And if anyone needs a Bible or an outline, just put your hand up and we'll make sure somebody gets you one. We're gonna be in verse 36 of chapter 11. Now between verse 35 where we ended last week and verse 36 where we're gonna begin right now is a long period of time, around 2,000 years thus far. It's the time period that we're in and it's known as the church age. And as we pick things up in verse 36, the angel is going to begin telling Daniel about what is going to happen once the church age ends and we go back into focusing on the Jews. You might recall that there was this prophecy that was given to Daniel detailing a space of time that was referred to as 69 weeks and then everything paused and everything paused when the Jews as a people, Israel as a nation rejected Jesus. And when that pause happened, very shortly after that, the church age began where God's focus shifted to the church of which you and I are a part. And we will be in the church age until the church is removed from the earth by the Lord in the event known as the rapture. Shortly after that, God's focus will shift back to Israel and that last 70th week of Daniel will begin. So what the angel is doing now is he's now shifting into that 70th week of Daniel. The church age is over. Church age happened between verse 35 and 36 in this prophecy because this is an Israel-centric prophecy. It's for the Jews. It's predominantly about Israel. And as we pick things up in verse 36, the angel is going to begin telling Daniel about Antichrist, the one who's going to come in the spirit of Antiochus IV, that Seleucid ruler we ended last week's study by looking at, except Antichrist is going to be even more extreme than Antiochus IV. The Bible tells us that Antichrist is going to be possessed by Satan himself. So in verse 36 we read, then the king, that would be Antichrist, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. And so the first thing I want us to make a note of on our outlines is this. Antichrist will demand to be worshiped as God. He will say whoever you people are worshiping, whether it's Jesus, Jehovah, Allah, Buddha, Krishna, I am above them all and you need to recognize me as being above them all. Antichrist is going to demand to be worshiped as God. We go on reading and it says, he also shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. In other words, he's gonna speak curses and insults towards the true and living God and shall prosper till, underline that word till in your Bibles, the wrath, underline wrath, has been accomplished. So there's a deadline on this. For what has been determined shall be done, and then underline that word determined. So Antichrist is gonna be allowed to prosper and conquer during the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. 
If you've been with us, you'll recall that the Great Tribulation is the back three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is a seven year time period. The Great Tribulation is the three and a half years on the back end of that. So for that time, he's gonna be allowed to prosper. Other places in the Bible tell us he's gonna be allowed to overcome those who become believers during this time, killing them. And he'll also succeed in killing two out of every three Jews, but it will only be for a determined time till the wrath has been accomplished. Now let me ask you, whose wrath are we talking about? It's not the wrath of Antichrist. The wrath that needs to be accomplished is the wrath of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Your reference on that is Revelation 6.16. Some of you will remember if you've been through our Revelation study with us. But during the time of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years, is when finally God's wrath is poured out on the world that has rejected him and has said they have no interest in him. It happens during the 70th week of Daniel. So make a note of this, Antichrist will blaspheme God and succeed until Jesus has finished pouring out his wrath. Antichrist will blaspheme and succeed until Jesus has finished pouring out his wrath. I could tell you to underline some things in these next few verses, but I have almost the the whole thing underlined in my Bible because it's important. It says, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of woman, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So let's talk about what we can learn from this description of Antichrist. In verse 37, we learn that he's not going to serve any God that is currently known or worshiped by man. He's gonna claim that he himself is above them all. And as he claims that all men should worship him, he's going to serve a different God. According to verse 38, a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. I'll unpack this in a minute, but make a note of this. The God that Antichrist will worship will be military domination. The God he will worship will be military domination, literally a God of war. Now how is he going to worship this God of military domination? We're told he's going to worship it by throwing money and treasure at it. In other words, he's going to spend whatever it takes to build the greatest military force the world has ever seen so that he can go out and conquer the world. That's where his money's gonna go. And if you know anything about what weapons cost, It's unbelievable. They say people stop counting dollars when they're having their first baby. You know, $1,500 for a stroller, I don't care, I'll take it. Man, do people stop counting dollars when it comes to military weaponry. We're building a new plane. It's gonna cost about $2 billion for each plane. Sounds good, let's do it. Hey, it doesn't work. Oh well, let's just try another one. Countries stop counting money when it comes to weaponry and the cost is, astonishing. 
Antichrist is going to throw money like no one's ever seen in purposes of building a military. And I'm gonna suggest to you, this is my personal speculation, that in light of everything else we've learned about the spiritual realm in the book of Daniel, that there is most likely a very real God of war. There is most likely a powerful spiritual force that is allied to Satan and is devoted to stirring up war and bloodshed and atrocities. And I have to believe that based on the absolute demonic things that happen in war all the time. And I'm not even talking about bloodshed and loss of life. I'm talking about a perverted fervor and bloodlust that overcomes people who are involved in military engagements on every side all over the world. I think there's something spiritual going on that Satan loves to jump on those opportunities to wreak havoc. So personally, I don't think this God of war is allegorical. I think he's quite real, and I believe verse 39 supports that. I I put the New American Standard translation on your outlines too because I think it's a little bit clearer than the New King James that I usually read from. It says it this way in the NASB, he will take action against the strongest fortresses, so the most important military places on earth, with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So this god of war is gonna partner with Antichrist against the strongest military forces on earth because Antichrist is gonna acknowledge and serve this God. This God is gonna receive glory in its own twisted way through the actions of Antichrist. And Antichrist is gonna reward those who ally themselves with him as he serves this God. And none of this sounds like an allegorical spiritual force to me. Also back in 37, we're told that he will not regard the desire of woman. Now this causes many Bible scholars to speculate that Antichrist may very well be gay. And we could point to Bible prophecies that speak to a dramatic rise in practically militant homosexuality in the last days as evidence for that viewpoint. We think of places like Genesis 19, which Jesus referred to when he talked about the days of Lot being a sign of the end times. Some scholars tell us that the term the desire of woman was actually a term for Messiah. And they say that because the desire for every single Jewish woman, the ultimate desire was to be the woman chosen to give birth to Messiah. And so Messiah was literally the desire of woman. And so some scholars say, well, it could be another way of saying Messiah. He'll have no regard for Messiah. However, in my opinion, that doesn't seem like a very distinguishing characteristic for Antichrist as lots of people have no regard for Messiah. Uh, My belief is that the view that makes the most sense is that it's simply telling us that Antichrist is not gonna have the capacity to love any woman, to have a family, to have a marriage. Being fully possessed by Satan, he will have absolutely no capacity to love and no capacity to have any type of meaningful relationship with anybody. Verse 39 ends by telling us that Antichrist will reorder the global map. He's gonna rearrange things and distribute power to those who allied with him and can pay him for the privilege. So make a note of this. Antichrist's goal will be to establish a one world government under his leadership. We know from other studies he's gonna begin with a revived Roman Empire, but he's quickly gonna elevate his aspirations to taking over the world and he's gonna set out in an attempt to do that, to establish a one world government under his leadership. 
Now let's read together in verse 40. And just in case we were unsure what time period this is happening in. Just in case we were thinking maybe this refers to something that's already happened. Verse 40 says what at the beginning? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land that would be Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Let's talk about this. The idea in verse 40 is that countries to the north and south of Antichrist's revived Roman Empire are going to see the writing on the wall. They're going to recognize just like Hitler, he's never going to stop. He's going to go on conquering till somebody stops him. And so they decide they're going to do something about it. The king of the north that's mentioned here is actually the king of the far north, which is Russia. And this may very well be the Magog invasion that's prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's a possibility. Now, if you have no idea what you're talking about and you're like, Magog, that is the most nonsense name I've ever heard in my life. I'm not disagreeing with you on that. But you can go online and listen to our study of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I put the link on your outline and I encourage you to just do that in your own study time and see how it might line up with what we're reading here. But the point is, Antichrist and his military are going to emerge victorious. They're not going to be overthrown. And then verse 41 tells us that Antichrist will enter Israel, the glorious land, which is where his most important actions will take place. And he's going to actually headquarter himself in Israel at that time. But we're told that he's going to be unable to conquer three regions, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. These are all modern-day regions of the country of Jordan. And when we read the context here, it's pretty clear that the only reason that he would be unable to conquer these territories is not because of their military might, because there's nothing there, really. It has to be because God supernaturally stops him from being able to conquer there. And I'm going to suggest to you that that protection is given by Michael, the archangel who protects Israel. Now, why would the Lord be interested in protecting these specific regions in the country of Jordan? because they include the route to Petra and Petra itself. Petra is the ancient city that was carved into the rock by the Nabataeans. Most of you know it from Indiana Jones and it's not Raiders, it's Last Crusade. Last Crusade when he goes through this valley and there's this epic temple that's just carved into the rock. That's a very real place, it's called Petra and it's in Jordan and it can house several hundred thousand people. It's an engineering marvel, and right now it's a tourist attraction, but we believe the Bible suggests that that may be where the Lord chooses to shield the group of Jews that he's going to supernaturally protect during the Great Tribulation. We believe he's going to lead them out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, where Antichrist is trying to kill them, and he's going to shelter them, most likely in Petra during the Great Tribulation. Verses 42 and 43 point to Antichrist beginning to move his forces south into Egypt and then down into Africa and continuing his conquest into that continent. My guess is that at this point in the 70th week of Daniel, at this point in these seven years, 
When Antichrist is feeling invincible and on top of the world, I mean, the armies of the South and North have tried to do something about it, but they can't stop him. He's feeling invincible. I believe it's at this point that chapters six through 18 of the book of Revelation begin to unfold. The wrath of God begins to be poured out upon the earth that has rejected Jesus, and the whole thing explodes at this point. Just remember that all of those judgments that God pours out on the earth, documented in Revelation chapter six through 18, those do not all happen in the great tribulation in the back three and a half years. They begin in the first half, and you can go back and listen to our study on that if you wanna revisit that, and I think that starts happening about this time. It's also my guess that we now jump ahead in verse 44 several years, maybe three or four years, because enough time is going to have passed for Russia to regroup. And that would put us pretty close to the end of the great tribulation, the end of the whole thing. Verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him, trouble Antichrist. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. That would be Mount Zion, the temple mount in Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So verse 44 tells us he's gonna get troubling news from the east. At this time in world geography, the east was technically anything east of the Euphrates River. So technically it could include territories like India, but I think it's far more likely this troubling news is coming from China and that it's related to the army of 200 million that is mentioned in Revelation 9:16, And I'm gonna leave that to your own study as well. And so this troubling news may very well be that two military superpowers, China and Russia, are coming together in a pincer movement from the north and from the east pin him in Israel and take out Antichrist. And so he sets his military force towards those two powers and decides he's gonna take them on. Again, we're most likely very close to the end of the Great Tribulation at this point. And as he's taking on the armies of the North and the South and mobilizing his forces, in his fury, he also simultaneously cranks up his persecution of the Jews to its most intense phase. How intense, as we've said before, the Bible tells us two out of three Jews are going to be killed. Right now there's around 15 million Jews on the planet. We're talking about 10 million if it were to happen today being wiped out. And what seems to happen according to the Bible is that the military forces of Antichrist end up confronting these armies of Russia and China from the north and the east in a very specific place in Israel. It's a valley known as Megiddo. In the English, the translation comes out to mean Armageddon. But what seems to end up happening is that as they are about to take on each other and try and take out Antichrist, the end of the 70th week of Daniel arrives, the end of those seven years, the end of the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, and Jesus returns at the second coming in the clouds with us, the church, riding with him, he's on a white horse, and the most insane thing seems to happen, instead of fighting each other, the armies instantly unite and turn their weapons toward the Lord Jesus, which doesn't go well for them. And that's why it tells us of Antichrist, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him, because there will be no one 
to help him. So make a note of this. Antichrist will meet his end at Armageddon at the second coming of Christ. Antichrist will meet his end at Armageddon at the second coming of Christ. And I put those references on your outline so you can go this week and read all about it in the book of Revelation. Now let's just stop for a minute because if you put yourself in Daniel's shoes and and if you go back and read where this prophecy started in chapter 10 and you read what this prophecy said in chapter 11, you'd have to conclude that Daniel must have felt a real sense of hopelessness for much of the angel's message. Because after all, the message was, Daniel, I know you think everything's gonna be better after 70 years in Babylon, but here's the thing. Your people are gonna be released after 70 years in Babylon. They're still not gonna be broken. They're still not gonna repent. They're still not gonna turn to me. There's gonna be four more centuries of my discipline on them, trying to get them to repent, trying to break them, trying to bring them back to me they're still not going to repent. Then I'm gonna send Messiah and they're going to reject him too. They're gonna reject the savior I'm gonna send. And that's gonna launch around 2,000 years of discipline as they fall under spiritual blindness. And then after all that, the worst persecution is going to come. It's not a feel good message that Daniel has been receiving. But things start to turn when speaking of Antichrist, the angel ends chapter 11 by saying, yet, yet, he shall come to his end and no one will help him. And then the first three verses of chapter 12 that we're gonna go into right now are gonna give Daniel reason for great hope. Verse one begins, at that time, Michael, the archangel, shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. We learned in our previous studies that Michael is the only archangel we know of that's named in scripture who is allied with Jesus and he has the special task of being assigned to Israel as our spiritual protector. And so during the great tribulation, Michael's gonna be busy. He's gonna be doing work protecting the remnant of Israel, the one third of the Jews that are gonna be supernaturally protected despite Antichrist's desire to kill them. Then we go on and it says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, here's the hope, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Jesus spoke about this exact same thing in a message he gave that's called the Olivet Discourse. And when he did, he said it like this, I put it on your outlines. For then there will be great tribulation, that means great trouble, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor ever shall be. In other words, this time's gonna be so bad, nothing worse is ever going to happen on the planet Earth to the Jews. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This time of trouble is gonna be the great tribulation. And so the reason we don't need to wonder if it's something that's already happened back in history is because the angel told Daniel and Jesus told his disciples that it would be a time of trouble worse than anything the world has ever seen or anything the world will ever see. When people say, well, this is talking about the destruction of the temple back in 70 AD, here's the thing. What happened in the Holocaust was worse than anything that happened in the first two centuries after Christ. 
worse than the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, worse than the Jews being scattered across the earth in the diaspora. So it can't be referring to that. It says it's gonna be the worst thing that has ever, ever happened. That's the first clue that we're given. We're also able to avoid being confused about when this takes place because both the angels and Jesus declare that the direct result of the great tribulation will be the deliverance and salvation of Israel. How do you know it's not the Holocaust that happened in World War II? Because it didn't result in the salvation and deliverance of the Jews. They didn't turn to Jesus. So we know it's not talking about that. So make a note of that. The direct result of the great tribulation will be the deliverance and salvation of Israel. It is explicit in scripture, it's so clear. So in case you've missed it, scripture is once again being crystal clear that the Jews will be saved through end times events, end times events. Daniel 11.40 told us the angel was talking about the time of the end. Daniel 12.1 told us he's still speaking about that time because that verse begins with the phrase, at that time. The angel tells Daniel, at that time your people shall be delivered. There's no confusion about who Daniel's people were. They were the Jews. So we have an explicit promise from the angel who's delivering a message from God that the result of these end times events, the result of the great tribulation will be Daniel's people, the Jews, being delivered. It's crystal clear in scripture. When Jeremiah the prophet wrote about this day, prophetically, he said, and I think I put on your outlines as well, he said, alas, for that day is great. Day just means time period. So that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. When the Bible talks about Jacob in the corporate sense, it's talking about the nation of Israel. How do we know? Because God literally changed Jacob's name to Israel. He's considered one of the fathers of the nation. So, are are all the Jews who ever lived going to be saved? Let's read on. It says, everyone who is found written in the book, in the book. And so the next two verses are gonna make it crystal clear that not all Jews who ever lived are gonna be saved, just as it is with Gentiles, non-Jews, you and I. Those who place their faith in God or responded rightly to what he showed them of himself, those are going to be saved. Verse two, it says this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And I want you to underline everlasting life and everlasting contempt. And just make a note that both of these conditions are everlasting, they're everlasting. The life of those who belong to Jesus is as eternal as the contempt and suffering of those who reject Jesus. We need to have a major sidebar here to understand what Daniel is talking about. And again, I wish I could explain this so that if you knew nothing about any of this, you would understand all of it. But we have some time limitations, so I'm gonna be as clear as I can and trust you to dig into this in your own time. Hopefully this sparks your curiosity. Daniel is talking about two resurrections. What do I mean by that? I mean two events that the Bible says are going to unfold where people's human bodies, our human bodies that decay and age and die, are going to be exchanged for resurrected bodies, eternal bodies that are never going to die, never going to wear out. They're gonna last for eternity. 
These two events, these two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. Why a thousand years? Because at the end of the great tribulation, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, Jesus comes back, that's the second coming, and he establishes what's known as the millennial kingdom. Jesus literally rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, Satan is bound up, and everyone gets to see what the world would have been like if Adam and Eve had not rejected God's rule over them. And what's gonna happen in that time is we're going to realize how absolutely responsible we are for everything that's wrong with the world. Because Jesus is gonna be able to say, here's the world I made, here's what I created, and everything about it is going to be good. And that's going to vindicate God against anyone who would say, well, you know, I'm just the product of my environment. I had a screwed up childhood, I grew up in a screwed up world and that's why I'm screwed up and so you can't hold me responsible. And one of the things that's going to happen is unbelievably, even in that perfect world, there are still going to be those who will choose to reject the rule and reign of Jesus. And that's gonna prove that we don't sin and commit evil because we're the product of our environment. We choose to do it and we're responsible for it. So this thousand years is known as the millennial kingdom. It's gonna be heaven on earth, literally. It's going to be incredible. And so these two events, these two resurrections are separated by this thousand years of the millennial kingdom. Both events are best understood as being classes of people. The first resurrection, you're gonna make a note here. The first resurrection is made up of Jesus, the church, Old Testament saints, so people who believed in God but died before Jesus came to the earth as a man, and tribulation saints, those who come to know Jesus after the rapture, both Jews and Gentiles, and it takes place before the millennial kingdom begins. The first resurrection takes place before the millennial kingdom begins. So first, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was the first man to ever receive a resurrected body. He rose from the dead and the Bible calls him the first fruits from the dead. He was the first to receive a resurrected body. Secondly, the church will be raised from the dead. This is going to happen at the time of the rapture. All believers who are alive on the earth at this time are gonna be taken up to be with the Lord where we will receive new resurrected bodies. And all those who are part of the church And when I say the church, by the way, I mean all believers in Jesus Christ. I don't mean like this church, because that would be really weird and you should be moving towards the door if I was saying that. Only those who are part of this church, that's not what I'm saying. Those who are part of the church who believe in Jesus but have already died will also be taken up to be with the Lord at that time and we'll all be there together. Now my personal belief when you look at the Bible is that those who are part of the church but have already died are immediately transported to this point in time. And the reason I believe that is because when we die, we are able to transcend time. And so this point in the rapture, it's no problem for the believer who died in the first century AD to die and immediately find themselves here 
at the point of the rapture, as well as the person who died in 500 AD, they can go straight there. The person in 1000, you and I today, if we're alive when the rapture happens, is no problem at all in the supernatural realm for all of us to arrive at the same place in the presence of Jesus at the same time. I say that because the word says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, meaning there is no time that we're sleeping in the grave or anything like that. It is instantaneous that those of us who belong to Jesus are with the Lord. The church will spend the time between the rapture and the second coming with Jesus in heaven. So the church is raptured before the 70th week of Daniel begins, the great tribulation begins. And the church spends the time between the rapture and the second coming of Christ with Jesus in heaven. Thirdly, Old Testament and tribulation saints, both Jews and Gentiles, will be raised from the dead. These are those who served the Lord before the death and resurrection of Jesus, as well as those Jews and Gentiles who come to know the Lord after the rapture. So when the rapture happens, it's gonna kick off the greatest season of revival the world has ever seen. How do we know that? Because everyone who ever went to a church service and thought, man, I don't know if this is really real. I mean. What these guys are talking about, an invisible God, like, let me tell you, when the rapture happens, there are going to be millions and millions of people who are going to immediately understand, oh, it's real. It's real. What they were talking about was real. And they're going to be like, where was that message series on Revelation that I meant to listen to? What's going on? That's going to happen. It's going to be an incredible, incredible season of revival on the earth. Now they are going to be raised, Old Testament saints and those who come to know the Lord after the rapture, they're going to be raised from the dead at the end of the great tribulation, at the end of the great tribulation. My personal belief is that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into Hades, which is the abode of the dead, and we're told in Luke's gospel in a parable that Jesus tells us that those who died before Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, those who died believing in Jesus, couldn't go straight to heaven. Why couldn't they do that? Because Jesus had not yet paid for their sins on the cross. They can't go be in the presence of God because they haven't been made clean yet. They haven't been forgiven yet. They haven't been made holy. And so they wait in this part of Hades that's referred to in the Bible as paradise. And my belief is there are multiple scriptures that imply that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into Hades, gathered up all of those Old Testament saints and took them to be with him in heaven. And I believe that when he took them, where he transports them to is that time at the end of the great tribulation, that time of the second coming and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. All of these groups of people and all of these events fall under the umbrella term, the first resurrection. The resurrection that the angel tells Daniel will be to everlasting life. So when he says many will be raised to everlasting life, that's the first resurrection. Everyone who's saved, everyone who belongs to Jesus falls under the umbrella of the first resurrection. If there's a first resurrection, it means what? There's gotta be a second resurrection. And in scripture, it's also referred to as the second death. It is made up of the unjust, those who rejected the Lord across all of history. When someone dies having rejected the Lord, they also go to Hades. But instead of going to the paradise side, which is now empty, they go to a side that is a place of torment to await their final judgment. 
That final judgment is known in scripture as the great white throne judgment and it takes place at the end of the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. So make a note of this. The second resurrection is made up of those who rejected the Lord and takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. Takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now let's look at Revelation 20. We can't put it on the screen, it's too much, so if you'd like to turn there with me, just go all the way to the back of your Bible and go, I think, two chapters back. In Revelation chapter 20, verse four, I'd love you to read with me. It says this, John the Apostle, who's receiving this revelation from God, says in verse four, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And and then I have this underlined, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these are those who came to know the Lord after the rapture. But what's gonna happen to almost everyone who places their faith in Jesus during this time is that they're gonna end up being executed. There's gonna be a remnant, a group of Jews that are gonna be supernaturally protected by the Lord. But almost everybody else who comes to believe in Jesus is going to be killed by Antichrist and the Bible specifically says the method of execution is gonna be beheading, which sidebar leads to a lot of speculation that one way or another, Islam may end up allying itself with Antichrist because it is the only religion in the world that advocates beheading as its form of punishment for unbelievers. So it's talking about those who come to know Jesus after the rapture. And we're told very clearly here in the last part there of verse four that they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they clearly go into the millennial kingdom. Now the only way that can happen is if they receive resurrected bodies before the millennial kingdom begins, which would be at the time of the second coming of Christ when he comes back to the earth. End of the great tribulation, at the time of the second coming, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Verse five in Revelation 20 says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, the one that happens at the beginning of the thousand years. So this first resurrection takes place before the millennial kingdom begins. We know that because everyone who is raised in this first resurrection goes into the millennial kingdom. Jesus is there, the church is there, the Old Testament saints are there, the tribulation saints are there, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse six, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Are you picking up the redundancy here? The Holy Spirit really wants us to understand they're gonna be with him for that thousand years. Everyone who belongs to Jesus receives resurrected bodies in the first resurrection and goes into the millennial kingdom. Verse seven, it says, now when the thousand years have expired, so now we're jumping ahead in time to the end of the millennial kingdom. Skip to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, this is the great white throne judgment, and him who sat on it, this will be Jesus, skip ahead to verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, 
and the dead were judged according to their works. Underline that. The dead were judged according to their works. That is the choice you make when you reject Jesus. You make the decision to be judged by your works, and the standard you're compared against is the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. You do not want to be judged by your works, by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. There it is again. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, This is the second death. The second death, the second resurrection is the one that Daniel says is to shame and everlasting contempt. I hope you notice that there are no believers being judged at this great white throne judgment. When the books are opened and people are judged according to their works, there are no believers being judged according to their works. Praise God for that. That's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. You are saying, I do not want to be judged according to my works because I acknowledge and I recognize that I do not measure up. I am a sinner. And Jesus says, well, how about I die for your sins? And then you can be judged based on how holy I am instead of how holy you're not. That's what the divine exchange is. That's what the gospel is. It's incredible. And so we're not judged based on what we've done, but we're judged based on what Jesus has done for us. Daniel doesn't see the thousand years of the millennial kingdom in between these two resurrections, and it's because we're gonna find a lot of this is still a mystery to Daniel. The whole flow of redemptive history had some big gaps in it for the Old Testament prophets. That's why the Apostle Peter in the New Testament tells us in his first epistle that these Old Testament prophets looked into what they wrote to try and understand what it meant. Because even though they received the revelation from God, they didn't really have full understanding about it. Daniel says there's a resurrection to life and there's a resurrection to shame and contempt. And in Revelation we see that they are a thousand years apart. The first resurrection starts with Jesus and then the church and then the Old Testament saints. Why in that order? Because the church goes to be with the Lord at the end of her era. The end of the church age is marked by the rapture. That's why the church goes. It's the end of her era. Then the 70th week of Daniel begins, and now the focus comes back to the Jews, and it's the Jewish era again. And their era comes to an end at the end of those seven years, at the end of the Great Tribulation. And that's when the Old Testament saints, who are also Jewish, go to be with the Lord. And what a glorious hope this is, you know, Daniel, this mighty man of God, didn't understand everything I've told you. The Old Testament prophets didn't understand everything that we've just talked about. They didn't get the whole picture. Jesus tried to help them out a little bit. Early in his ministry, he said this. I put it on your outlines. He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus said, everybody's gonna come out of the grave. All bodies are going to be resurrected one way or another, some to life and some to death. And that's the choice we all have to make. Everlasting life or everlasting death. Verse three, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Who are the wise? They're those who believe in the Lord. 
and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. As the Jews begin turning to the Lord in the great tribulation, they're gonna begin preaching to everyone they can about this Jesus that they found. And that's why in verse three we read about those who turn many to righteousness. Verse four, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, underline time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Underline knowledge shall increase. This is very interesting. The angel tells Daniel basically, this prophecy is being shared with you to bless you because you're very precious to God. And so he loves sharing his future plans with you, Daniel. But Daniel, this stuff is not for right now. Don't go start a Bible study about this, Daniel. Nobody's gonna get it. A lot of things are gonna take place between now and when these things unfold, but when the time of the end does come, knowledge is going to increase. And at that time, Daniel, people will understand it. I've shared before that we're living in what's known as the information age, a time of absolute explosive access to and accumulation of knowledge. They say that everything we know, all the information we have, is currently doubling every 18 months. Every 18 months. When I was a kid, knowledge doubled about once a decade when Encyclopedia Britannica revised their volumes and put them back in the library. That's how often knowledge was doubling when I was a kid. And so like many preachers, I've shared before that what may be being referred to here is simply the information age we're in when it says knowledge shall increase. And I believe that's true, but I believe there's another interpretation that's also true. The original language makes it clear that the knowledge that's being referred to in this verse by the angel is knowledge of this specific book, knowledge of this, the book of Daniel, the prophetic message the angel is bringing. The angel is telling Daniel that when the end times are reached, people's knowledge, their understanding of Bible prophecy about the end times is going to increase supernaturally. God's going to release it. People's eyes are gonna open up. In other words, it is in the plans of the Lord that the generations that are alive in the last days have greater insight and understanding into end times Bible prophecy than any of the other generations that came before them. That's God's plan. So make a note of this. It is God's plan that the Bible's end times prophecies be understood in a far greater way in the end times, in the end times. And I find that such a blessing because it means that you and I are at such an advantage when it comes to understanding Bible prophecy because the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit is working to give us insight and understanding into his word about Bible prophecy, understanding on a level that not even the greats of the faith in previous generations could wrap their head around. And why would the Lord have those greats of the faith in previous generations not understand this? Why would he do it that way? Why would the Lord have the disciples, the disciples of Jesus, the early church fathers, Luther and Spurgeon, live in the expectation of the return of Christ. Do you know that? That all true believers since the disciples have been living with the expectation that Jesus could come back in their lifetime. Why would God choose to do it that way? Quite simply because you really do live differently when you understand how close heaven really is. It changes how you see the world, it changes how you live. That's called the doctrine of 
imminence. It's the belief that Jesus has desired and desires all Christians at all times to live in the expectation of his return. The phrase, many shall run to and fro, is a term that's used in the Bible a few other times, and it's always used to describe someone looking for something. The idea is that in the end times, especially after the rapture, people are going to be looking. They're gonna be looking everywhere they can for answers that will give them understanding as to what in the world has just happened. And people are gonna be led to the book of Daniel and their understanding and knowledge of this is gonna be opened up. I think in a way that we can't even comprehend right now. I believe that in that time, after the rapture, God is gonna release such understanding of his word that anyone who seeks is gonna open Daniel. They're not gonna even need a commentary. They may not even need to go find messages to listen to or anything. God is just gonna empower them to understand what is written and enable them to see how it applies to their situation. I'd suggest to you that as much as Daniel is a blessing to you and I, as much as our understanding has been opened up with regards to this, chapters 10, 11, and 12 of this incredible book are first and foremost designed to benefit the Jews that will be alive on the earth after the rapture. Think about it. To them that read it at that time, this prophecy will let them know that everything that is literally going to hell with Antichrist was prophesied by the Lord thousands of years earlier. Their terrible persecution that they're in, they'll understand it's been prophesied by the Lord and they'll understand that it has a purpose to draw them back to the Lord. Not only that, but as they read it, they're gonna learn that this Antichrist will be defeated, that the Lord is on his way, he's returning for them, and he's gonna make the world new as he reigns over it for a thousand years. If we think Daniel is precious to us, we can't even begin to understand how precious it's going to be to those who seek the Lord on the earth in the years following the rapture. Verse five, then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? These are the two other angels Daniel saw back in chapter 10 when he started receiving this vision. They're asking the question that Daniel should be asking, but Daniel's probably too busy picking up his jaw from the ground to ask. And I should mention that the word wonders there doesn't mean good things, it just means awe-inspiring things, mind-blowing things. Verse seven, then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for, and then underline this, a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? If you've been with us, you know that's three and a half years. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to this Daniel series so that you can understand it. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. To Daniel, which is who this angel is speaking to, the holy people would only be one group of people, the Jews, the chosen people of God. And sadly, what has to happen is that through the great tribulation, the Jews need to be shattered. They need to be broken. Why? So that they can be saved. Because it's not just them. There's no one, no one of us that can be saved without first being shattered, without first recognizing that we are broken 
and we have need of a savior. It's just that it takes a lot more to shatter some than it does others. Jesus is about 2,500 years right now into his project to shatter the Jews, which will succeed. Verse eight, although I heard it, even Daniel says, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he just gets shut down in verse nine. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. The angel tells Daniel, hey, the parts that you don't understand, don't worry about it. God's gonna unseal and reveal these things to the people who need to understand them in the end times. Verse 10, the angel keeps speaking to Daniel and says, many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. A lot of bad things are gonna happen, Daniel, but the result will be that many will come to know the Lord, including your people, the Jews. Verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. He is referring to the event here which splits the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel. After the first three and a half years, Antichrist will go into the temple in Jerusalem, desecrate the Holy of Holies, declare himself to be God and demand to be worshiped. And at that halfway point, it kicks off the great tribulation, the back three and a half years. But if you're paying close attention, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Jeff, you've walked us through the math before. There's 30 days in a month on the Hebrew calendar. God's prophecies always use the Hebrew calendar. That means that three and a half years should be 1,260 days. But now they're saying there's going to be 1,290 days till all these things are fulfilled and the millennium begins. What's going on? What's going on? You see, the angel gives us the starting point of this time period. He says it's the halfway point of the 70th week of Daniel. It's the beginning of the great tribulation. It's the abomination of desolation when Antichrist goes into the temple. That's the starting event, but he doesn't actually give us the end event. He doesn't say what happens after 1,290 days. We know that puts us a month after the second coming of Christ, but we don't know the exact event he's referring to. It could take a month to set up the millennial kingdom. It could be that it takes 30 days to cleanse the temple ceremonially. It could be that it takes 30 days for Jesus to judge who among those who are still alive on the earth at the end of the great tribulation will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. Not everyone who's alive on the earth will be allowed to make it through because a lot of those who are still alive on the earth will be alive because they've taken the mark of the beast and made the decision to serve Antichrist instead. So there's gonna be a judgment known as the sheep and goats judgment. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse. Maybe that takes 30 days. We just don't know yet. But the angel goes on in verse 12 and then he says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Another 45 days puts us 75 days past the second coming of Christ. What happens then? We have no idea either. So apparently these are two dates that we don't need to understand yet. Perhaps they'll be revealed before the rapture or perhaps they'll be revealed to the Jews during the great tribulation. We just don't know. And when it comes to Bible prophecy, I want you to know that we don't know everything. We choose to trust God with the things he has made known to us. Wherever your understanding of Bible prophecy is, this is the choice you have to make. 
Will you refuse to believe any of it until you understand all of it? Because if that's the choice you make, you're never gonna reach the point of understanding all of it, never. Or will you choose to believe what the Lord does reveal to you? If you will, you'll be blessed. Jesus says so himself in Revelation 1.3. That's the decision you have to make. When you come across something you don't understand, you don't throw the whole thing out. You just say, I'm gonna choose to believe the things that the Lord has made clear to me. Verse 13, but you, Daniel, go your way till the end, till the end of your life, for you shall rest, you're going to die, and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Go live your life, Daniel, you're gonna die, but you're gonna be raised to life again at the end of these things. You're gonna be one of those Old Testament saints raised to life at the beginning of the millennium. I'm gonna say this in conclusion. God has a plan. He has a plan for your good. He has a plan for my good. And the Lord is so good that he is determined to do what is best for us. So he looks at our lives, he knows the decisions we're gonna make, and he knows where we need to be broken. He looks at us and he says, if I don't break you in that area, it's not gonna benefit you in the long run. And he is determined to do what's best for us. He also sees all the things that this fallen world and our fallen bodies are gonna throw at us in life. He sees it all. And the Bible tells us that through all of it, he's doing good for us. And what a picture of that we see in God's dealing with the Jews. The lengths he has and is and will go to in order to bring them to him. We said it last week. He would have every right to just say, I'm done, I'm done. 2,500 years is long enough to try. I don't think anyone can accuse me of not doing my part. But he doesn't do that. He keeps going and he's gonna bring them to their place of greatest good, which is his presence. And the lengths he is going to are extraordinary. And he would do the same for you. He's doing the same for you. I don't even know how I'm gonna get through this last part uh, here. In 1932, A.M. Overton, was a pastor of a church in Mississippi with a wife and three young kids. She was pregnant with their fourth child, but when it came time for delivery, there were complications. Both she and the baby died in childbirth. During the funeral service, the, the preacher who was officiating the service noticed that Overton was writing something down on a piece of paper. After the service, the preacher asked him about it, and Overton handed him paper with a poem on it that he had just written and the poem's called He Maketh No Mistake and it just fits perfectly with the history and destiny of Israel and it fits perfectly with the history and destiny of every believer including you and I. Let me read it to you. This is what he wrote. He said, my father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache but in my soul I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him, he maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight's far too dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. 
For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, thank you so much that you, you don't make a single mistake, Lord. Not one. We make countless mistakes, countless foolish decisions, countless intentional decisions to sin. But Lord, you don't change at all. You, you just stay faithful. And you keep working good. You keep working good. You keep working to do good in us, through us, to bring us to the place of greatest good, which is in relationship with you, in your presence. Lord, we confess we don't understand it all, but we also confess that we're okay with not understanding it all. Because what you have allowed us to understand is more beautiful and glorious and gracious than anything we could dream up or ever ask for. And it's more than enough. It's more than enough. And so we know in faith that when we receive our resurrected bodies and we arrive in your presence and everything is made plain and as your word says, we know fully, our confession will be that you didn't make a single mistake. You were faithful in and through everything. And so we bless you this morning for that, Jesus. We bless you for that. Thank you for your faithfulness. Keep yourself in this attitude and focus on the Lord. And I just feel led to encourage you today to go back and take communion, but that as you take communion today, would you just release to the Lord any fears or uncertainties or, or questions you have that have been nagging you? And I want to encourage you to release them to God by just telling him that you don't need an explanation. That he's given you enough for you to know that he's good and he's faithful and he doesn't make mistakes. And I just believe that if you will do that, you will experience an incredible, incredible peace that only comes from choosing to step into the place of faith and trust in the goodness of God. I believe there's some among us this morning who, who desperately need that peace, to leave those things in the hands of the Father and say, it's okay that I don't know. It's okay that I don't understand. I will one day. And I know my confession at that time will be that you were faithful. And I know that already. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.